Hi, everyone. Uh, we're continuing this week in our series on the parables of Jesus, and we're continuing this week with the parable of the banquet, as it's called in most versions. Now, Jesus is at this time on his way to Jerusalem. He's teaching as he goes, as he tends to, and he's ultimately uh, doing this aware of what awaits him at the end of his ministry, so there's gravity to it. You know, he's not just traveling. He's going towards the ultimate uh, crucifixion and the point of his destiny on earth. And this parable is part of a single scene in the scriptures here in uh, the second chunk. of Well, it's, it's the first chunk of uh, Luke chapter 14. Um, the single scene is all about this kind of going to feast at this house and what Jesus talks about there. Uh, Jesus, on his way, performs a miracle. He offers some advice. He finishes the evening with this warning parable. It's a warning that could work on a couple of levels, some more obvious than others. But before we talk about that, let's lay out a little context about chapter 14. So Jesus is, at the start of this chapter, he's on his way to Jerusalem. The sun is going down on a Friday. Once the sun is down, that's when the Sabbath begins and no work is supposed to happen. Jesus likes to challenge these Sabbath sticklers a little bit. That's part of his, part of his deal. Um, and he gets the chance to do so on this occasion as well. He's been invited to dine with some Pharisees. Uh, and he's heading into the house, and he encounters on his way into the house, uh, maybe just outside the house, it seems, a, a man suffering with what the NIV calls an abnormal swelling of his body. Now, uh, other versions make clear that this is probably dropsy, sort of a case of water retention under the skin. Um, it's almost certainly not a case of a man who is so swole, uh, so muscular that he can't fit through doorways, and that's interfering with his life. Funny as it would be if that were the case, but I like to imagine that is the case. So Jesus encounters this troublingly swole man and intends to heal him, but he looks first to the Pharisees nearby and he asks them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they don't have an answer for him. They'd probably like to say no, but they can't really find the grounds to say no. And so Jesus miraculously heals this man of his afflicting swollenness uh, and reminds the onlookers that if they had a child or even an animal that fell into a well on the Sabbath, they wouldn't wait a day to rescue it. And then he proceeds on to dinner with his host and the host's guests. As they dine, Jesus offers two pieces of wisdom. Uh, sometimes the translation called this the parable of the guests, and they sort of jam these pieces of wisdom together. They're not really parables at all. Parables are kind of teachings uh, that are come through stories for a start. And here Jesus just tells them what's what. He doesn't say, there once was a man who da-da-da-da. Um, he says, when you get invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the best chair sit in the worst chair. That way, if the host has already got plans to put someone in the, uh, in the best chair, then you won't look like a jackass when he has to move you down to a worse chair. And if the host wants to promote you to a better chair, then you get to stand up and move to a better chair, and then everyone can honor you as you are visibly upgraded. So be humble uh, in this circumstance. And he follows up this teaching with another banquet-related teaching. He says, when you host a feast, uh, when you are having a luncheon or a dinner, you can... You could invite your friends and your, your family and the rabbis and well-to-do people, but they'll pay you back by inviting you to their dinners. And that's the payment that you will get. But if you invite the poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame, people who can't pay you back, well, then your reward will come at the resurrection of the righteous. God will reward those who go unrewarded here and now. Be compassionate. God's reward will come. And then we come to the passage uh, that has been read for us. Now, someone at the table overhears Jesus saying this, or they're probably all listening quite raptly. He hears Jesus saying this. He decides it's his moment to shine. Uh, it's time for him to say something clever that will see him be respected by the other Pharisees and even this Galilean celebrity preacher. 
chimes in, well, speaking of feasts, blessed are those who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Hmm? Feeling pretty proud of himself for chipping in there partway through what Jesus was saying. Now, the text only says that Jesus replied. So the way in which he replied, the body language, the, the facial signals, things like that, they're all left silent for us. Uh, but I like to imagine the hard blink that people do when they hear something they think is particularly dumb. Uh, kind of look. And then put down whatever he was eating and folded his hands and drew in a breath. And then he told this parable. The parable of the banquet. A man is preparing a banquet. He invited many guests. This is not a small gathering. There's a lot of logistical effort involved. Uh, RSVPs have been sent. Everything is nice and set. The host wanted everything to be perfect before people came. Uh, so they're all waiting to hear from him before they come over immediately. And he contacts them by the fastest communication available in the ancient world, having a skinny guy run to you. Uh, and that's what happens. He has his skinny guy, his runner, run to the house and shout through the windows to alert the guests that things are ready to go. He sends his runner, but every time the runner gets to a guest, he gets a different dumb excuse. One guy, oh, actually, uh, I just bought a field, and I have to go and look at that field. Uh, another guy says, oh, actually, I just got five yoke of oxen, and I am just, I gotta take those babies for a spin. You know, these are 10 fresh oxen. You know, you gotta get on that right away. Uh, another guy says, oh, this is awkward, I double booked. I know I said I'd come over to the feast, but I got married, so honeymoon. Um, <laughs> these are bad excuses. Um, bad excuses because they don't sound particularly real. They sound much more like they're avoiding this than they have anything legitimate. But the excuses aren't the point of the story. The excuses are bad ones to offer uh, as a reason not to attend the event that you said you would attend. Either because they're silly excuses in themselves, like, why would you buy a plot of land if you hadn't seen it? Uh, why would you buy these driving animals, these oxen, if you hadn't already tested them to know that they could do the job? Uh, or they're bad because you had a responsibility to let the host know before the day of the feast that you were, in fact, getting married on that day. None of these are good reasons to bail from this feast. They all indicate a deep ambivalence towards the host of the banquet. Uh, a counterintuitive discovery considering the fact that he just threw this feast for them, these people he considered his good friends. So the host is left alone with a mountain of food, all the preparation he's done. The runner comes back to him and tells, and, uh, and the host tells him, well, go out into the street, get the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, bring them in to enjoy this feast. And when it turns out that that's not enough to exhaust what's been prepared, he says, go out further into the neighborhood, and start just sending people in. I will tell you when to stop. Uh, keep them coming until the house is full. And I tell you, the master announces, with a line that Jesus uses to finish the parable, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. End of scene. Both of the scene of the parable uh, and is kind of the end of the, uh, the scene at the, the banquet at which Jesus is dining. Now, what lesson was Jesus teaching at this table full of Pharisees and their esteemed guests? Now, consider that he had stopped on the way in to heal a sick man, uh, and he'd paused to disabuse these Pharisees, even of the notion left unspoken that there was something wrong with that on the Sabbath. Uh, the wisdom about the guests and the seats is Christ saying, don't be arrogant, don't rate yourself too highly, don't presume you are more important than you really are. This is true first with human hosts who could shame or honor you for a start, but it's also infinitely true 
for God, in whose hands are eternal shame and honor rests. And in case the lesson is overlooked as purely one about party guest etiquette, uh, he tells the esteemed gentleman there as well to treat the least people, the poor, the blind, the lame, the crippled, as worthy of honor, worthy of their honor, because honor is always repaid for honor. And your rich friends can honor you equally on earth. God will honor you after the resurrection. Don't presume too much. Be humble. Uh, honor those of lower station. Trust that God will hold your reward. It's into this discussion of selflessness towards mankind and devotion towards God that another voice in the story, the other voice in this story, this nameless guest, chips in his own comment saying, blessed are those who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And how you read that statement uh, and how this guest meant it very much affects uh, how the rest of the parable is read after that. Now, as always, when the Bible does not say something explicitly, we must be careful what we read it to be implying. Uh, in the case of a lot of scripture, you can read your own meaning into the text and then sort of get out the meaning that you want back from it. Uh, the last parable I preached was um, the parable of the rich fool, uh, and it was very much like that. You could read into that story and get the idea that, well, maybe Christians should never save money. There's something wrong with that inherently. When really the parable is about those who build up their lives around uh, worldly concerns rather than around God, uh, which is the point of an awful lot of parables. Um, but this parable is a little looser, and there's a couple ways to read it in a way that uh, fit with the text, and they result in a meaning that is deeply in keeping with the rest of Jesus' ministry. So it's kind of a multi-purpose parable like that, and I believe that Jesus would have meant all of these things. So when we look at what the guest says, we have a little flex in how to assign motivation to his comment. Uh, is he saying, it sure will be nice when God has gotten rid of all these unworthy types, the poor and the lame and whatnot, and locked them outside so that we can have a proper feast without having to worry about that in the resurrection? Jesus might be responding to that. Uh, the Lord's correction would be one that meant, in case you weren't listening, the undesirables who answer the call to the banquet are more valuable to God than those he invites but don't show up. Don't be so sure, buddy, that you're so special that God wants you inside the door. Uh, better to be a grateful cripple than a landowner with his head stuck in the clouds so far that he misses out on the kingdom of God. Now, this would not be a wrong interpretation. It doesn't twist or abuse the text. Uh, it might sell it a little short. So what other options do we have? Well, you can take that idea that the undesirable ones are versus the worthy ones and go a little bit further with that. Uh, after all, Israel is occupied by the Gentile Romans. That's part of the atmosphere in all of the gospel stories. It never goes away. It's always kind of relevant. So maybe what this guest is mostly saying is it sure will be nice when God has sorted we, the worthy Israelite chosen, from the Gentiles who will get what they deserve. This makes sense as a reading as well. When the host in the story says, uh, after all, the nearby folks have been rounded up. The servant is to go into uh, the back roads and the highways and get everyone he can from even further away, start scooping them up. That seems very much like an extension of the franchise, not uh, initially not just to the Jews and not just even the, the suffering Jews nearby who are imperfect, but also to the Gentiles far off and those ignorant of the love of God as they might have been. If you read the parable like this, the part about the crippled and blind and lame and poor unfortunates is just kind of a, 
a secondary feature, a reminder of what Jesus had said to them earlier about being kind to them. And this may be true, uh, since it would seem odd that this guest would chime in right after Jesus mentions the honorable, charitable action of dining with such people to disparage them. Jesus' warning here would uh, come out feeling the, the parable meant like, don't be so sure that you will be at the feast just because you got the invitation. You can't eat an invitation. Uh, you have to show up. And Jesus knows with painful foreknowledge that a large proportion of the Jews, once he is crucified, will not show up to the invitation they've been given. It's the Gentiles who will pour into the new church from the highways and the back roads and the religious darkness, the, uh, the kind of people who didn't even know there was a feast to be had, uh, let alone to receive an invitation to it early. They will appreciate it more than the ones who slept through it with an invitation in their pocket. So is this story about the unfortunate ones versus the fortunate ones, the sick and the lame, so forth, uh, against the healthy, wealthy, and clean? Is it about Gentiles versus the Jews? Both have truth when read through this parable. And Jesus seems to point to both. So maybe just take both. Uh, in that case, many nights after this meal, as the Pharisees and disciples who had attended had run through this conversation in their head a bunch of times, reflected on it, and tried to distill what Jesus meant, they may have ultimately concluded Jesus wasn't saying one or the other, but in fact saying the kingdom of God does not invite an exclusive guest list of healthy, wealthy Jews. After the resurrection in the heavenly kingdom that follows, God will call him to himself all those who gratefully respond to his voice. And no matter who they were before, they will be at that point guests in the kingdom of heaven. Those who do not attend his voice will not sample this feast at all. Now, this is a, uh, a fine compound message. You get both those things out of it. It's in keeping with the way that Christ interacted with everyone he met as if they were inherently valuable, uh, worthy of his time. He showed favor to those who responded with gratitude and faith rather than any particular station or anything they had to offer. Uh, it's in keeping with the early church principle that we most clearly see in uh, Galatians in chapter 3, Paul's famous words, now there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. But some who heard the parable, uh, for some who heard the parable, uh, this may have been too much of a picture to take in, too big, too strange. They would not follow in their heart a God who was so cavalier about the quality of guests in his kingdom that he would have those kind of people. In it, and ultimately, God will not force those people to follow him. They will have the distance that they prefer. And there's yet another way to look at what Jesus is saying here, and I think it's the, the one I like most because it's most applicable to modern readers, not as an exclusive meaning to the others that we've just discussed, but as something that we can draw a stronger meaning out for ourselves today. Not to come off as too proud of the church, but we are well past the days when only the wealthy or healthy were considered worthy of God's goodness. Uh, and we are all Gentiles here, in as much as there are Gentiles at all, uh, and not uh, an abolishment of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, if we focus only on the parable's application as Christ warning against this exclusive ownership of the gospel, then we have to start scrambling around for, for examples of the kind of person the modern church doesn't think is worth God's time. And I'm not sure that such a person exists. 
Um, if God is the host and Jesus is the runner and the Jews are the invitees, we are the people who got drawn in off the highways and the back roads. Uh, if that's all there is, and the application is, remember to be grateful to that God loved you enough to invite you into his kingdom, even though you weren't worthy, even though you weren't on the guest list to start with. It's not a bad message, it's just not really telling us anything that the gospel, as a general uh, telling of the gospel tells us. It doesn't have a more specific teaching. But here's the other angle to this parable. Remember that the guest next to Jesus had spoken gleefully about the future. He says, blessed are those who will feast in the kingdom of God. He says this because Jesus mentioned the resurrection, uh, the day of judgment where the dead are restored to life and sorted into those who will follow God and those who won't. On that resurrection, yes, there will indeed be a, uh, a time where we are in the kingdom of God uh, together. But there's one problem with this. The resurrection of the righteous and the kingdom of God are not exactly the same thing. They're not exactly the same thing. There's a lot of overlap to the ideas there. But when Jesus mentions the resurrection, uh, he means the future event, the one we see in the book of Revelation, where people, uh, what people today tend to call the going to heaven, uh, that kind of end state when everything is sorted out, uh, the final state of oneness and glory in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Those two terms are used interchangeably in the Gospels. But we know that Jesus' ministry hasn't been telling people, look forward to the day the kingdom of God comes. Uh, Matthew uh, chapter 3, verse 2, has Jesus being baptized. And the pronouncement that he makes at the beginning of his ministry is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In Luke's Gospel, in the chapters before this parable, uh, chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus instructs his disciples in the same announcement. He says, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into the street and say, even the dust of your own town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you, yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. When Jesus says the kingdom is near, he is not saying, oh, you're running out of time, it's, it's near. It's almost here. He is saying, the kingdom is near you, as in, I have brought the kingdom of God with me because I am God's appointed king. I came from heaven to earth and I have brought the kingdom near to you. The kingdom of God came to earth with Jesus and never left. One day it will be completed with the resurrection and on that day we'll see heaven and earth uh, finally conjoined in a perfect uh, total union of God's accomplished plan. But it still really truly began when Jesus arrived. So when someone sitting next to Jesus, the guy who proclaimed the kingdom is near, uh, when this guy sitting next to Jesus pauses from the feast, he is enjoying to say, oh, blessed are those who will feast in the kingdom of God. He is showcasing his fabulous ignorance of who Jesus actually is, what the kingdom is, what God's plan is, and what God is asking of his people. Because he is at that moment feasting in the kingdom of God. Uh, if that's what Jesus is responding to, and I'm convinced that Jesus, as the world's greatest teacher, uh, among other things, I'm convinced he has responded to that as much as everything else, then the parable here has a stark new angle. The focus might not be so much about the exclusivity, who's in and who's out of the story, but about the breathtaking indifference of the people who had been invited to this feast. 
The time had come, the messenger had come to them and said, come now, the feast is ready, and the response is, eh. Are the excuses real or are they lies? Are the invitees uh, dumb enough to buy land without seeing it and oxen without driving them or to get married without understanding that a feast is super appropriate to take your recently married uh, wife to? Are they just avoiding the host for some reason? Either way, they are lame excuses. And they're in the parable to stand in for the lame excuses people use to avoid their obligations to the kingdom of God now. The kind that Jesus has rebuked all throughout his ministry. Oh, I'll follow you. I just got to take care of something back home first. Oh, I'll follow you. I just don't want to spend a lot of money. Uh, I'll follow you as long as your vision for the kingdom conforms to mine. Otherwise, I have my own priorities. In essence, uh, as is almost always the problem, it is the worldly concerns that people have allowed to occlude their vision of Jesus and how they pay attention to eternal concerns. Those that came with Jesus into the kingdom that he brought. When this guest says, oh, blessed be those who feast in the kingdom of God, he is saying, among other things, blessed be those who will get to be in that heavenly time where we no longer have worldly concerns competing with us so that we can pay honor to God directly. Wouldn't it be nice when all this other stuff doesn't matter? And, you know, amen to that. That'll be nice indeed. But Jesus gives him a parable about foolish men who are so tied up so tied up in worldly concerns that they miss out on a feast that stands in for the kingdom of God. They ignore the invitation sent to them because they don't consider it worth their time. Translation, if you don't have time for God's kingdom now, on earth, in your life, with all the competing desires and concerns of the world, if you are unwilling to place God at the top of your priority chart now, why would you think that you belong in God's kingdom eternal? And that's the message that's relevant for rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, ancient times and modern days. The kingdom of God is now because Jesus came to us to establish it. You are living in it, and when you proclaim the gospel, you are extending its borders. When you snooze and avoid its obligations, you are letting part of that kingdom fall into decay and disrepair. We live in it and for it now. Because God sent his son into the world to initiate this kingdom, to inaugurate it, uh, and raised him from the dead to promise that all the work that was done in the kingdom in this world is not in vain, but would one day be completed and perfected by the work of God himself. So how do we live in the kingdom today, since the kingdom is here? Well, by living the life the king would have us live for a start. In the same scene, Jesus has promoted three virtues, all of which are necessary for children of the kingdom compassion on the man he healed on the Sabbath, humility in the case of someone who is invited to this wedding feast, uh, generosity as is the case of one hosting a feast, inviting those who are the least able to pay. That's a start, compassion, humility, generosity. They are excellent virtues promoted all throughout the scriptures. Although you don't have to read terribly far to find God also endorsing other virtues, courage, justice, temperance, devotion. These are the kinds of traits that a saint must have if they are going to preach the gospel effectively. And it's our responsibility as recipients of grace to cultivate that growth in ourselves now while the kingdom is among us and not simply to coast through life attending other things until God simplifies and perfects his kingdom in the final day. We're not just waiting out the clock. Uh, we are building the kingdom here and now. 
This isn't the same as saying the concerns of this world have no value or are pointless or don't mean anything. How you support those who depend on you financially, how you improve the lives of your children and grandchildren, uh, how you personally uh, seek to find someone to spend your life with, all of these have value in our lives. A great deal of value, as do even less profound things like uh, working diligently or enjoying good company or partaking in those things in which our souls find joy. But we don't get to just focus on our vision, on those things uh, immediately apparent and worldly things that are near to us and leave the less apparent heavenly things until the next life. The kingdom is now. It's immediate, if less apparent, than the worldly things. And God expects us to balance and weave together all of these things wisely. Not perfectly, not without mistakes and learning, but with real devotion to take the kingdom first. Now, have you ever been tempted yourself in your life to sideline the kingdom, to make room for worldly concerns? Maybe not really sink roots into a church so that you can shift around where you like Take a break from serving in a ministry you're gifted for just for a season, but secretly maybe forever. Uh, I can't give you a generalized rule about how to balance kingdom work and your life's obligations. I can't give you a, a general rule about how to balance those, uh, but it's going to look different in everyone's individual case. But it is your duty to look for that balance in your life to hold yourself accountable in the light of the Spirit's guidance and prompting about where you might have fallen short and to take His lead, to follow Him in how to get back into the rhythm, into the right weave of these things, one of which God approves and honors. That's what it meant to, uh, to die to ourselves daily when Jesus said it. That's what it means to take up our cross to be a living sacrifice. And one day we will be in the kingdom complete where the burdens of life are taken away from us and we'll have the extra joy of knowing at that time that we were saved by our Lord apart from any work that we did. But we were saved into a kingdom that he invited us to take a hand in building with him. What a blessing that will be. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your son to bring the kingdom into the world to show us by his resurrection that it will one day be complete and to invite us to not only look forward to what will come but to dwell in your kingdom now. Help us to live in gratitude of all that you've done for us and to live out that gratitude in the way that we build the kingdom. Guide us by your Holy Spirit in any matter where there might be confusion about the boundary of what we should do attending to some matter in this world that's urgent or attending to a spiritual thing that's important. Help us find the balance, Lord. Only your spirit can guide us through something like this. We ask for your continued blessing and we ask with gratitude in our hearts and we ask in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, church.